It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. He's waving. He's happy to be here. Adam and I have a really fun episode scheduled today. We're going to dive deep into why NBA prospects can sometimes struggle to live up to the expectation heaped upon them when they get drafted early in their respective draft classes. And this is a really fun idea, right? I want to shout out the Twitter user that gave us this idea later on. I want to shout out a number of things. But first, Adam, what's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, happy Sunday night here in the United States or Monday morning your time. Uh, doing great. Everything is good on, on our end here. Uh, had a good weekend. Got to see Barbie. So like doing some actual life things in August because apparently you're, that's what you're supposed to do a little bit is not just watch Synergy for 18 hours a day. So trying, trying that on for size. And, you know, so far, so good. No, like you're tweeting out clips of Hanson Yang, yeah, uh, yeah from yeah. U19. Like we need to, we need to restrict synergy access for you, yeah. uh, for like a week maybe. Like I, I might get like you know someone over at Synergy, like Matt Curley, to be like, <laughs> no, like you, you please lock Adam out of Synergy for a week. Like that's that's it. <laughs> they've they've tried before. They've never been able to fully keep me out. I've got like three burner accounts on Synergy and other people's who I can borrow. So like this, I, I love where your head's at. It's not going to work. Oh no! By the way, Hanson Yang, fun player at the U nineteen this year for China. Like really fun player. Uh, actually, I am like actually genuinely intrigued with him as a prospect. Uh, he is someone that like seems to have that that skill where he has extra time that the other players don't right? whatever it is in his brain where he's able to like slow things down in his mind. Every time he has the ball, it feels like he has an extra split second to make decisions that other players don't have. And that is, uh, that's a really impressive skill to have. I think. Yeah. A million things to clean up and continue to improve to become a, a professional basketball player or an NBA guy. But it, at first glance, like his feel is off the charts for a seven footer. I'm intrigued. Truly. No, tr- truly like off the charts. Yeah. Um, he, he is like a, I think he is a genuine player for NBA teams to track. Uh, Hanson Yang, like no question. Okay. Lawrence Field, did you listen to Down to Dunk this week? Because apparently there's some sort of simulation that Down to Dunk uh-huh. did that Lawrence Field is asking about in the YouTube comments. I've not done, I've not done expansion draft or Down to Dunk, although that is not a bad idea, and I might steal that idea from Andrew at some point where we do that. 
Uh, no, th- this episode is going to be based upon an idea sent to us by user Alex Eddy over on Twitter. Shout out to Alex, longtime listener. Uh, going back to the uh, Coles Wicker, Kurtenbach days of the ep- of the show. Um, I want to I want to talk about this this idea of and I'll I'll say exactly what the tweet was that gave us this plan. It was. Let's see here. Where where did I get it? Uh, keep crushing the summer content. Was curious if you could do an episode on why certain guys didn't make it, haven't made it yet. Uh, did it have to do with fit, evaluation, something else? You know, examples that we'll get into later on. And I thought this was such a good idea to dive into for like a summer episode, not only in terms of trying to make us get better at our jobs as evaluators, trying to think a little bit more critically about why players don't work out in the NBA, but also in terms of listeners and trying to maybe explain maybe why someone didn't work out. Maybe some of the different factors that can go into a player not working out uh, as it refers to the NBA. I love this idea. And I think you hit the nail on the head. This needs to be framed from a how can we as talent evaluators and scouts improve and how can we as as fans and consumers of of the product continue to increase our understanding of the game of basketball. It's, It's not just about looking at these guys and trying to pick apart where their careers went wrong. Like every time you give constructive feedback or you analyze somebody and you look at the either the negatives, the improvement areas, the things that went wrong, you need to try to take a positive from it. Something for us to learn, something for them to continue to improve at. And, and I just hope that we, as we listen to this conversation, myself, you, or any anyone else out there, keep that in mind. Yeah, and here's a word that I don't want to use. I don't want to use the word bust throughout this conversation. Uh, it was funny, I was listening to, I think a Pistons podcast had Stanley Johnson on to talk about um, what do you say when people call you a bust? And honestly, like that conversation and that kind of discussion that, you know, Stanley Johnson was very thoughtful about kind of made me comfortable talking about this, even though we're not going to use the word bust when we talk about these players, because he was very thoughtful, like in the way that he says, like, you know what? I, I don't think of myself as a bust. Like I had a number of, uh, things that happened basically right as soon as I got into the NBA. I believe that he referenced his mother passing away and him getting to camp late because of it. And, you know, the trickle down effect of everything that happened through that. And then like an injury occurs and, you know, just the different contextual factors that can lead to someone maybe not living up to the expectation that is heaped upon them. And I think ultimately these draft selections end up resulting in a world where expectation is heaped upon players in a real substantial way. And I just want to be a little bit more thoughtful about the way that we go about this conversation. And one way that I want to do it is by starting with this idea. I think that there is this, and I think that this is maybe where it all stems from in many ways in terms of why a player doesn't live up to expectation. There are precious few rookies. There are probably five to seven rookies every decade that come into the NBA 
and are genuine great players in the NBA. Luka Doncic stands out. It's probably less than seven, to be honest. You might be able to convince me it's five. Um, There are very few players that come into the NBA from the jump and are elite level players and are ready to go. Like I would say, you know, honestly, Evan Mobley being an all defense guy from day one, that is exceedingly rare. So every single time that a player enters the NBA, that player has to get better in order to keep up or in order to showcase his worth in the NBA or just to essentially be in the NBA at all and stick in the NBA and establish your place in the hierarchy in the NBA. So one thing that I feel like I often hear from people is, oh, like X player, he didn't get better. Oh, he just never got better. He stagnated by the time he got to college. Uh, He just completely... uh, you know, just there's no there's no point where he ever improved his skill set, right? And that's just like so categorically wrong. Like, yeah. Yeah. it's not that players don't get better when they get to the NBA; it's that they may not improve at the rate of other players, or they don't improve at the rate of the guys around them in the NBA who are also competing and all trying to get better and all trying to improve. And by the time you reach a certain veteran status at that point, your work ethic is incredibly good. You know how you have to go about improving. You get slotted into a great role that you know how to work within, within the construct of the team that you play for or within a number of other teams that you can go play for at some point. And that allows you to hone a specific skill set that works for you. But at the end of the day, these guys all get better. Like Anthony Bennett, I would bet you right now is a drastically better basketball player than he was in his first year with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Despite the fact that Anthony Bennett is not playing in the NBA, a number of NBA slots, you know, let's say, you know, maybe two to three per team something like 90 spots per year in the NBA, uh, more than that, including two-way contracts, but let's say guaranteed contracts, maybe 90 to a, you know 110 slots playing the NBA. They are given contracts based on what they will be, not what they are currently, because the upside of what they will be will at some point be great. It's just that you have to keep improving to do that. And your rate of improvement has to keep up and has to keep going at a level commensurate with NBA status and NBA skill sets, right? It's not that guys don't get better. It's that they don't get better at the same rate that other NBA players do. And there are a number of reasons why that can happen, but I want to start there and I'll let you talk now because I think I've just laid this out for four minutes. I I think that this is, this, this is the most important place to start for me in my opinion. I like that. And I think it's important to note that everybody does improve, but it's also important to note that development is never linear, that it's not a year one, you get better at this and you take another incremental step forward year two, then year three, then year four. And now it's contract decision time. And we'll decide if we want to keep this player or move on. 
development does not work in that way. There are ledges that you jump on or, or, or down, peaks and valleys throughout this conversation that you have to be aware of. But the other part of this, you mentioned that everybody gets better at something. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that you've got to get better at the right things in order to stick in the NBA. So, yeah. uh, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead of, of the conversation here, but there's only one basketball on a court at a time. And it tends to be a little bit of an adjustment to try to figure out how to find your yes. role and your voice when you might be sacrificing some touches, being asked to do things for the benefit of the team that you have never done before. So the adaptability that players show when they get into the league to not just accept that role, but then excel at it on the court is really an important factor in this. Yeah. So I kind of want to jump into the ways that I think this can be a problem first Uh, ways that guys can end up not continuing to grow at a level that is marginally better than the other players around them within an extremely competitive NBA, because that's the thing. Everybody around you is trying to get better. Everybody around you is honing their craft in some way. Everybody around you is trying to take your spot. The 750 guys in Europe in college next year, the 60 draft slots in college next year that uh, exist, the now uh, 92-way spots that exist, they're all trying to take your spot as well. So the key to me is improving at a rate beyond what they are improving at. So what are some of the reasons why, you know, maybe you don't improve at that rate? I just want to throw out the top three things here that absolutely occur just contextually that maybe we don't see. Sure. Um, or maybe we do. Injury, work ethic, or off-court issues that will stop your work ethic, right? Uh, I don't think we need to dive into injury necessarily. I think that is just something that can occur. Just know also, I think that, A lot of the time, NBA fans don't know about all of the injuries that are occurring that can stop somebody from working out, you know, for three weeks here and there in the offseason. There's just no reason to report that, right? So I think it's really, really important to note that injuries are not just the ones that you hear about. But sometimes they're the ones that you don't hear about that keep a guy off the court for three months in the offseason or two weeks in the offseason or whatever it is, right? Work ethic is obvious. Sometimes you have to evaluate work ethic. That's the reality. Complete, completely 100% a real thing. Again, don't need to dive into that. I think it's pretty obvious. Off court issues that can stop you from getting in the gym and, you know, doing things and being the kind of person you need to be. Again, we'll talk about some examples with that. I think one is abundantly obvious. We will talk about that momentarily here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Sam, I'll just throw out a couple coachisms yeah. that kind of wrap this up because these phrases are abundant within the profession that I work in. And, and I think for any younger guys who are still playing and trying to pursue their dreams of basketball, they're important messages to hear, right? One is the best ability is availability. I think we hear that all the time, but it's not just, hey, are you on the bench during the game when coach can call you to sub you in? It's being in the gym frequently. It's avoiding those distractions or those areas off court that are going to 
pull you away from getting better at your craft, as you just mentioned. And I think the second aspect of this is what I always say, coaches and people who are trying to help you get better, you're in the business of eliminating excuses. You need to find ways to tune out all of that stuff that's going on outside that's within your control and focus on getting better the best that you can. And sometimes that's character eval that you can go through during the pre-draft scouting process. Other times there's just life that happens. And sometimes that is outside of everybody's control. But at the end of the day, you want to have guys who are available, keep working, and eliminate all the excuses to make sure that this is their craft and they want to keep getting better at it. In terms of the things that are developmental, that I think sometimes can be reasons for not improving at the rate of your peers, right? Sometimes your body just maxes out a little bit quicker than other players do, right? Again, development is not linear. Physical growth is not linear, right? There are guys that you look at when they are 15 years old, you know, everybody gets a little bit bigger from the time they're 15, but there are guys that are 17 that don't get much bigger than what they were when they were 17. Right. And, you know, we'll talk about specific examples where that happened. Obviously. I think that one to me that stands out in that regard is Stanley Johnson, right? Uh, Stanley Johnson was a brick shit house from the time he was 16 years old and just dominated in a real way. And, you know, we just talked about Stanley Johnson at the top and that's, you know, uh, he didn't have any more room to grow in his frame. So he had to improve in other ways. And unfortunately, seemingly other things stopped him from doing that. Sometimes your skill set is just kind of maxed out, right? You know, maybe you don't have as much to grow athletically as other players. And you're a little bit of an older player and your skill set, you know, from a shooting perspective, you've maxed out your shooting. And then You just don't have, you know, the shiftiness in your hips. You don't have this. You don't have that. You don't have the ways to get better in the ways that you can. Uh, Speaking of that, like athletic limitations, certainly, right? There are athletic limitations that sometimes just stop you from getting better uh, comparatively to other NBA guys, right? Uh, If you are somebody that has kind of stiffer hips, I think you're going to have a little bit of a tougher time going against the kind of fluid athletes that the NBA occurs or uh, NBA has throughout its ranks. Uh, It's just going to be really hard for you. If you, uh, if you aren't wildly explosive and you're going up against a league of 400 of the best athletes in the league, that's going to be a problem for you sometimes. And there are ways to go around it from a skill set perspective, but sometimes you just max out, right? I'm glad you brought up adjustment to an off ball role from the time that many lottery picks are 12 years old, 10 years old, right. a lot of the time, they are given the ball because they're the best player. They're the best player on their team, right? Of course, you're going to be given the ball if you're the best player. Think about comp- competitive basketball. You want to give the ball to the best guy on your team in order to win games. Adam's a high school coach. He will tell you, hey, <laughs> I love coaching off ball guys. Like I love having guys that can move without the ball, but at the end of the day, we got to get the ball in the guy in the hands of our best dudes. And when you have 450 guys in the league that are not only the best guy on their high school team, but the best guy on their college team, most of the time, probably the best player in their college conference, frankly, 
then you need to be able to adjust into more of an off-ball role. The examples I always give here are Tony Allen and P.J. Tucker. Both of these guys won Big 12 Player of the Year because of how good they were on offense, uh, not because of how great they were on defense. Like, both were great on defense, don't get me wrong, but you don't win Big 12 Player of the Year at six foot five if you are not an incredible offensive player. And then they get to the NBA and they have to adjust into an off ball role. Both guys do it tremendously. Right. But that adjustment doesn't work for everybody. Rashad Vaughn, I think is a great example of this guy that had the ball in his hands all throughout his life, struggled to adjust to that off ball role and didn't really know how to play without the ball at that point. So that adjustment, I think, can be a little bit yeah. harder for people yeah. than w- what I think is often recognized, and, maybe. And, um, and, and Sam, I want to go back to yeah. that at the end, if we can, because uh, that's uh, that's a point. I'm writing all these down now, so if it looks like I'm distracted off screen, I'm not. I'm writing all these down for no, I know, reference yeah. here. Um, but I want to come back to this at the end and talk about kind of the future of prospect development and some trends that we see at the youth and grassroots level that will show up in prospects in three, five, 10 years. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Do you have any, do you have any strong, maybe maybe we'll continue. Sure. Maybe we'll continue. Um, I think it'll be easier when we start to get into examples. Another thing that I think is really important that I've started to value more is Sometimes having a lack of experience at the highest levels of play and the speed of the game and the adjustments you have to make when things are flying at you high speed, like Kyle Mann just posted one of the funniest clips of Bob McKillop, like dancing and like giving a speech uh, that I've seen in a long time. But one of the things he's talking about is like absurd, sort of absurd. Um, He believes that all of the best guards come from cities because you develop kind of your spatial awareness and your reactions, like just walking around in cities, basically. Um, How much I believe that, I don't know. Uh, It feels like a coachism on some level, right? Mm -hmm. But one thing that I think is important is playing a lot of high leverage basketball minutes, getting on a court, playing against dudes, understanding what's coming at you, and not just relying on tools in some way, not just relying on uh, what somebody has and what they could be long-term, but actually seeing how those tools bear itself out. And from the player perspective, understanding what is coming at you, how to process that information, and then give an output, right? Make a decision. Can you do that at a rapid speed? I think guys that lose some of that experience early on can really struggle to get it back once you get to the NBA. Sometimes it's due to skipping levels. Sometimes I think that one thing that will be important that we talk about this year, is, for instance, with like Elliot Cadeau this yeah. year, is I have a very strong opinion that point guards should never reclassify. I think it's a really bad idea in general for point guards to reclassify because I think getting those reps and getting those, getting those experiences oftentimes of just being better than everybody. I know why I know the idea of why people think it's a good idea for point guards to reclassify uh, because you're getting against better competition. You're seeing things fly at you. I think that like to be a point guard in the NBA, you have to be really fucking good. 
especially if you're a smaller, undersized point guard. And getting reps where you are the best player on the court and where you can, like, just consistently, not just, you know, like Elliot Cadeau average, you know, 15 points and play in the NIBC and, like, be incredible and dish out passes at a really high level and be the kind of player that, like, I really like Elliot Cadeau's talent level. But I, I think it's really worthwhile to be able to actually get into those settings and dominate on some level, because that's what you have to do in the NBA. Uh, like even like somebody like Jeff Teague, right? Like Jeff Teague has to dominate the ball and he has to average 17 points and seven rebounds. And by the time he gets to Wake Forest, like he has to be able to be that floor general uh, at a very real uh, rate and, and often, and he has to run an offense at a high level. I think that skipping steps and skipping reps in that way is not beneficial to call or to high school point guards to under, you know, underage point guards. Like I, I think that point guards should never reclassify is my take. And I have examples back through history from Derek Thornton to like, frankly, Tyrese Proctor last year, I think is a great example of the fact that he really struggled early in his freshman season. Cause I think the adjustment was enormous, essentially skipping a level and reclassifying into that class. Ashton Hagens is another example of a guy that, you know, it wasn't wasn't a underage guy in terms of age, or uh, but skipped the last year of his high school career when he really could have gone through it and yep. tried to be great. Like uh, I'm trying, like I'm. You can go back through all of these big time five star reclassifications. Scotty Wilbekin gets to Florida at 16. Mm-hmm. It takes him like three years to be good at basketball in college. Like there are so 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 many. Yep examples of this where i think that trying to skip steps is a bad idea as a point guard well and two other things with that one it's not just point guards either right like we've seen james wiseman struggle to make that leap essentially from high school to the nba without having those reps in, in large volume at memphis and then going through a bunch of injuries like it's hard to reclaim the time that you miss for whatever reason you miss it whether it's injury and absence or just trying to skip that level. Like reps are really important. The second piece of that, it should make us really value teenagers who are playing well, particularly against professional competition at a young age, even more than we maybe already have. Like I I still look back at what Luka Doncic did before coming into the NBA. And I don't, I don't know how we can overlook something like that ever again. Yeah. I mean, Multiple others like Christian Lander at Indiana is another yeah. good example. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Kylan Boswell struggled at times last year. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like Kylan as a player and I, I'm like excited to see what he looks like at Arizona. And I'm imagining he's probably going to start this year, but I'm interested to see what he looks like. And there's uh, some weird circumstances, if I remember correctly there. Like Devin Askew was like a five-star point guard that skipped steps and decided to come forward and is in a weird spot. Um it's I think that a lack of experience by the time that you get to the NBA is very hard to or like missing reps in that way is very hard to overcome a lot of the time because that adjustment to that speed and that athleticism and literally the best players on the world is exceptionally exceptionally hard uh it's exceptionally hard to overcome um Let's see here. Do I have other things? Sometimes you're just older than other guys, like truly, like age does matter. Like I'm, I, I think I tend to be somebody that 
is a little bit probably more ambivalent than most draft evaluators to age. But sometimes you are maxed out. Yeah. Like that is a reality. Uh, I think the key is if you're going to draft players that are a little bit older, they need to be on a steep upward trajectory still. Keegan Murray was on a continual steep upward trajectory. Desmond Bain was on a continual steep upward trajectory for many years. I think that if you're going to draft older in the lottery in the top 20, you need to be on that kind of trajectory. Sure. If if I could rephrase kind of those two points, right? The younger guys, as well as these older guys who are on that trajectory, it's really starting your professional clock at the right time. Whether that's guesswork on your end, it's advice that you get from those in your circle around you, or just having the innate feel of knowing when you should be going to the NBA. The guys who who don't wait too long or don't come out too early are the ones that are always going to be best set up to, to succeed and maximize the time on that first contract to get minutes, to help an NBA team and prove that they belong in the league for a little bit longer. Mr. Muted over there. Yes, I was. There he is. Uh, the next, the next kind of group of things that I want to talk about are things that are outside of a player's control maybe just never finding the right fit. Right. Yep. I think that sometimes that does happen. Sometimes players just don't find the right spot for their skill set at the end of the day. Uh, that really works. And you know, that's, that's hard, right? Like that, that can be, that can be really hard and it can be a tough pill to swallow. I think for players that feel like they didn't get their chance to thrive. Uh, but I do think it happens. I think that sometimes, you know, it'll feed into one thing that we'll talk about later. Uh, I think sometimes GMs just kind of misevaluate a skill set and players get placed into roles that may not be best for them. And that can be a problem. Another one is just front office turnover in that regard, right? Yep. Sometimes you get to a front office. Every year, some front office is on the uh, chopping block or is on the hot seat, quote unquote but that doesn't stop them from making draft picks, right? They still have to make the pick of the guy that they think is best. And that's something that's completely out of a player's control, whether or not you end up or land in that situation is really, you know, something you can't, you can only control the things you can control, I think as a player oftentimes. And that's unfortunately something they can't control. And if you get drafted to a front office that gets fired, Maybe that front office is not nearly as connected to you. Maybe that lead executive is coming from a front office that did not have a high draft grade on you. Sometimes they those can be wrong, right? Well, well, it's human nature too. I mean, if, if they're going to fire a guy, whether it's a coach or a, a front office executive, chances are pretty good that they're going to want to bring in somebody who thinks about the game and roster construction a little bit differently. So if that's the case, then a, a younger mm-hmm. player who is vision envisioned to be in a certain realm is probably not going to have the same opportunity under the new regime. Yeah, like the guy that I always bring up in this regard is like David Lighty at Ohio State. Like, you know, 35-year-old guy now, you know, came out of Ohio State a little bit older because uh, he suffered some injuries early in college. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the right circumstances just never come up. You go to summer league and you don't shoot well in the two game sample that you get to prove yourself. Right. But you look at what David Lighty has done in France. 
He's a five-time French League champion, having played for Oswell. He's a two-time French League Finals MVP, two-time like French League All-Star. Like he's been phenomenal in that league for years upon years upon years. And I think that he could be like genuinely, I think he could have been in his prime uh, an NBA rotation player. He just didn't get the right opportunity at the right time to do that. And sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes you just never find that you, you never find the right thing at the right time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And my, my eyes are on Usman Garuba right now for that exact same reason. Exactly. Like I think Usman can really play, but we'll see whether or not he finds the right fit. Right. And, and the last thing I want to talk about here is just misevaluation, right? Okay. Players miss or front office people miss. It, it happens. And we're, we're going to talk about a great example of that early in this conversation. Sometimes we're wrong as evaluators. Sometimes people working work in front offices are wrong. Sometimes the, the pre-draft rankings and where teams have you ranked and where that can just happen. And we need to acknowledge it. Like, and that's not a fault of the player. That's just heaped expectations upon what a player can be. And, you know, sometimes it's an informed bet for what a player isn't right now, but what he can be in the future. I think Kyra Lewis stands out in that regard, right? Like, New Orleans, like he ticks a number of these boxes, like injury and, uh, you know, skipped steps, right? Because he reclassified and played uh, as a non-draft eligible player at Alabama his first year. And then he gets the NBA and ends up missing a full year in the NBA early in his career. So he's like behind the eight ball drastically in terms of the amount of reps that he can have. Um, but the idea behind Kyra Lewis was an informed bet of, hey, if this guy's body fills out, you know, he's very productive already. He can shoot. Uh, he has incredible speed, right? Like he can play within ball screens already. But we know that he can't play yet. It's just that down the road, we think he will. You know, I, that's uh, probably, I think, frankly, it's probably a misevaluation on some level. Like, we'll see if the injury stuff comes back. Uh, it, it, like, if he can get all the way back from sure. the injury, I hope that he does. And I hope that he's not just like a cautionary tale, but like, you know, that there, there are a number of examples of guys who can yeah. be misevaluated. And we're going to talk about that throughout the process. And there, there's one prime example I want to bring up when we talk about that. Sure. Um, but undeniably, like, that is, that's a real factor here that, yep. We need to not ignore as we go through this. Like very often evaluators are wrong because they're working within an imperfect, uh, you know, art form, basically. Yep. Yep. No doubt about it. And I think it's worth noting that many of these things can be true simultaneously. I I think that if you look at any of the players that we're likely to talk about for the next however long we're doing this, it's probably multiple of these boxes that get checked, not just one of them. That is the reason for the downfall. Um, can, yeah. can I can I add one more that yeah, I've been thinking about a little bit? Evolution of the game. Yep. That there are a lot of times trends in the way that basketball is played. It's a copycat league in the NBA. Teams see one formula that is working and oftentimes try to replicate it or build a roster that can beat it. It's very trend-driven at the period of time. So I, I know we'll talk maybe a little bit about some back-to-the-basket big men who maybe have have not turned into NBA stars in the way that many of us hoped, sometimes the trend of where the game of basketball was heading is a little bit outside of their control. Maybe it was, 
you know, a lack of skill or an injury here or there that, that influence things. But how valuable is being a 1.1 point per game, uh, point per possession back to the basket scorer in the modern NBA anymore if you're not a great defender and do all these other things to go with it? So as the game continues to change, we see certain types of players get phased out. And unfortunately, that just means sometimes guys are caught in the middle of that. Yeah. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, like, I think you need to go to a, you need to go to a spot that's going to develop you in the ways of the modern game. And we'll talk about one, I think, early on in this conversation that uh, just did not really get that. But we're going to go from 2015 to 2020, talk about like top 10 picks, basically, that really uh, didn't necessarily live up to the expectation. And we're going to take a quick commercial break, though, and then we will be right back. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, Adam, we're back. And we're going to start in 2015. I'm glad you brought up evolution of the game because I think that 2015 was really at the crux of that in many ways, right? Uh, And there's one name that 
stands out, the guy that went number three overall in that draft class. Uh, it is Jaleel Okafor. Yeah. Uh, Jaleel Okafor came along at a time where I think we all hoped that there was still a place for back to the basket bigs who were like incredible post scorers. And then we hoped that I think Jaleel would develop a jumper and that he would be able to move his feet a little bit better on defense. And I think we didn't value uh, as evaluators, the ability to move your feet on defense enough because, you know, 2015 in the NBA, 2014, 2015 NBA season is the year where the golden state warriors Warriors. won the title in 2014, San Antonio Spurs won the title, right? And, you know, they had Tim Duncan. They had these bigs that were – and Tim Duncan's a totally different deal. Tim Duncan's one of the best defenders ever. Nobody's going to confuse Jaleel Okafor for that. But, like, it, it, it's hard. I, I think it's a little bit harder than what you maybe would give it credit for back in 2015 to know that the league was going to go this far this way. Right. right. Oak four had a number of other things, you know, you know, he was speeding, you know, he got hit with a speeding yeah. ticket off the court, seemingly made some not ideal decisions. Maybe um, there are a number of different, you know, fact, I, I think that like he probably ticks a number of these different boxes as well. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, but, you know, it's, there's there's just a number of number of things here with Okafor that ended up seeing him not become what people hoped he would when he went third overall. So there's a lot to unpack with a guy like Jalil Okafor. And I think the the evolution of the game is the place where we, we ought to start. He was exactly who I had in mind when I brought that up just before the commercial break. This idea of the Golden State Warriors embracing going super, super small and essentially benching Andrew Bogut, and David Lee and just leaning into space to, in order to beat those LeBron led Cleveland teams, it changed the game in such a way over the next decade that it, I think we have to trace it back kind of to that moment. Yes, there are influences beforehand. I think the Spolstra Heatles teams were always well spaced. Mike D'Antoni's offenses in Phoenix led to this three point revolution in some regard. People, people thought that you couldn't win a title playing the way D'Antoni did in 2015. Like that was a, that was a real narrative. That is right. And and golden state was the first to shatter it. And if you look at the, the subsequent years and the way that roster construction worked at the NBA, look at James Harden's Houston Rockets teams and the way that they were essentially built to space the floor, shoot a ton of threes, but also have guys like P.J. Tucker who can move to that small ball five and match with a Golden State team in a pinch if you needed to. So the, the game of basketball changed a lot right around the time that Okafor was being evaluated and being drafted. And quite frankly, there's probably a week to two week long period between when the Warriors started to go to that so-called death lineup and be super small to win that title and when Okafor was actually drafted. Really small window there. Uh, Philly, as a team, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, Sam, they drafted three bigs in the lottery three consecutive years. Nerlens Noel, then Joel Embiid, then Jaleel Okafor. And there were injury issues, and there were guys on court. But that's a really tough combination. To see the league trending smaller and be a team that has just drafted three big men who were pretty much locked into playing the five 
So how do you split those developmental reps? How do you go through it with all of those guys when I think early on it was pretty clearly established Embiid had the best chance of turning into the man. Nerlens Noel can be a great defender. Jilo Okafor can be more of a, a back-to-the-basket scorer. Unfortunately, that just wasn't valued in the way that it it was a decade prior. And I, I think so much of, of where J- Jaleel's miss in some regard came from is a little bit outside of his control. He might not have done everything perfect that was in his control, but so much of this is trends to me. A lot of it's trends. I mean, look, like the 76ers, uh, if I remember correctly, they had to like assign like a security guard to like accompany Okafor. Uh, Yeah. So I'm looking at a report here from Chris Broussard in 2015, had to like assign a security guard to like be with him when he was out because of, uh, according to Broussard, uh, a few embarrassing and potentially dangerous off-court incidents uh, sure. with Okafor, right? So I think that we can, you know, say that that probably played a factor here in some way, right? Yep. Uh, his body developed more quickly than everybody, too. Like, he was big from the time he was, uh, you know, basically like a freshman and sophomore in high yeah. school. And... I just like don't think that I think that becomes a hard evaluation as well. Um, being that big that early, uh, just obviously he's going to be great at Duke, and obviously he was incredible, uh, you know, throughout the course of his high school yeah. career. But you know, obviously you can also say like you could see the cracks. Like I still yeah. remember Angel Rodriguez absolutely slicing him in February, maybe January of his freshman season at Duke uh, in ball screens and Miami, like upsetting that team. And it was incredibly fun to watch and also was probably a pretty big red flag Yeah, uh, at the end of the day. Well, it, it's a challenge when you're younger and you are so physically dominant to not rest your laurels upon that dominance. You need to continue to develop skill and you need to continue to develop for the moment when you're facing guys who are just as physically dominant as you. And getting those reps at a young age is really difficult to do. Uh, but, man, it's I, – I always worry about guys who just are so physically dominant but don't necessarily show the skill or the adaptability at different levels when they are challenged. The, the next one I want to talk about is Mario Hazonia because I, I like really – this is one that I really struggle with. Okay. Uh, the Okafor one is like kind of obvious. I'm pretty sure that like Hazonia just like I think he was probably a little bit overrated as an athlete in terms of the functionality of his athleticism and how it translated to the NBA. Uh, incredible open court athlete, not a great like half court athlete with like a great first step and super flexible hips and everything like that. I think that maybe that ended up causing an issue for him. Uh, once he got to the NBA, especially on defense, he was just not a very good defender. Um, his feel on defense was quite poor. I I just like, yeah, that, that was a weird one. Cause like, he's even gone on like been like a pretty effective player in EuroLeague at this point. Like, you know, he's played EuroLeague the last three years, uh, like 2021, 22, like he averaged like 15 points a game in EuroLeague and like was pretty effective. Um, then he played for Real last year and was like, again, a pretty effective player and like a bit of a more limited role. Like there, there was, 
that's one that I just can't, I can't totally figure out why, like he didn't at least stick in the NBA as like a spot shooter. Right. Yeah, it's tough for me because I wasn't doing a ton of evals back then. Uh, you know, no access to to clips or synergy. I, I wasn't in the the draft analyst business, but great two K player. Like that guy could get hot in a hurry in two K. Yeah, I mean, look, like he said to Basket uh, Basket News in April 2022 that a like he didn't get the respect that he felt like he deserved, um, and. Be that he didn't like the style of play in the NBA and that the NBA is more of a show than like basketball itself. So maybe he just like didn't didn't like fuck with the style in the NBA kind of. And for European players like that adjustment from a more European style of basketball where Mario Hazonia, like if you know him pre-draft, like he came up through the Barcelona system was like, you know, a very, very, very high end player like from the time he was like 15 16 onward and maybe that adjustment was just a little bit too hard for him uh sometimes that will sometimes that will happen obviously uh i also if i remember correctly i do think there was like a was there a was there a turnover situation there in terms of the front office as well, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to remember if he got in there because I know Orlando had been in the mid to you know, 2010s, kind of a, a turn style of, of head coaches in some regard. Was that around the year or was that a little after when Skiles came back for one year? It's a great question, but uh, if, if his own, you felt that way, Scott Skiles would not have uh, gone super well yeah. uh, with him. So, yeah, Skiles was 2015-16. And that then was Frank his rookie Vogel, year. The next yep. year was his rookie year. So I, I think probably a lot went against Mario Hazonia at yeah. the end of the day to try and make him an NBA player. And that's a shame. Uh, it's, it's a shame on some level. But th- there were also flaws. Like, let's not pretend Mario was, like, a perfect player when he was in the NBA. But he's one that, like – I look back and like, I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't stick. Like he ended up not being quite the shooter. That is what people anticipated from the NBA line. Like he was a career 32% three point shooter. And that was basically what he was over the course of his last three years as well in the NBA. Um, His best year, he averaged 9.6 points and shot 34% from three and averaged four rebounds and, you know, had a barely above, you know, one-to-one assist to turnover ratio. So e- even at his best, like it probably was just like a slight misevaluation on the athleticism. It was probably a slight misevaluation on the shot and, you know, it just didn't work for him. Yeah. And it's, it, he's one though that like, it surprises me that he didn't stick as a rotation player. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being a rookie having to come in and learn a new style of basketball playing for Scott Skiles. That's, that's a tough ask. Next up, Emmanuel Moutier is a uh, Emmanuel Moutier is a fun one because I, I think that he is a good, very good example of my skip steps uh, and skip experience corollary. Um, six foot four point guard, like had real, like had a great physical frame, had the ability to really get guys on his hip. Like the thing that I remember is him playing with Nikola Jokic at um, Hoop Summit one year where, uh, like, it was really hard to stop those two. 
in pick and roll actions. Um, you know, Moutier never had like great explosiveness. I think that was probably a little bit overrated, but he was a guy that like seemingly had this great feel for ball screens. I think that as he moved up levels, it became clear that it was harder for him uh, because he just didn't have that like innate passing ability that he needed at the highest levels. Like he was pretty good uh, with Denver as a passer. He wasn't great at it given what his lack of explosiveness was and his lack of shooting was as well early in his career. Like he needed to be an elite rim pressure guy and an elite passer. And he was like a pretty good passer. But I think that, where we see the skip step stuff is he goes to prime prep in Dallas in high school for his final season. I have skepticism (laughs) on what that was and what that was like, uh, ends up committing to SMU decides to not go to SMU goes to China to play in the CBA Plays just 10 games in the CBA. Played like in the playoffs in the CBA or whatever. In total played 12, averaged like 18, 6, and 6, and was like pretty valuable for the most part. But it it just never felt like he got the necessary reps to me. Because when he got to the NBA, it felt like things were moving fast for him as like a point guard that was going to have to live off of feel yeah. in a real way. Yeah. And then he has like a couple injuries. Like I think his second year, like he had like a weird, like interrupted second year kind of thing where it was a bit of a struggle. Um, then he gets traded. If I remember correctly, um, plays like a decreasing number of games every year for his first four years. And then gets the like revival year in New York where he was pretty good in 2019 uh, where it was like, okay, no, this is like kind of, this might be, might be a thing. And then he signs with Utah and then like, doesn't really get the chance. He's one where I think the skip steps thing kind of hurt him because as dirty dancer says, you know, another Stanley Johnson type, he developed physically at a really yeah. high level early. Yeah. He was like 6'3", 200 pounds, like very early in his high school career and could keep guys like on his hip all the time. And he didn't develop at the rate with his skill level that he needed to. Yeah. Uh, w- once you have those advantages, the key is to keep developing your skill level to be able to maintain those advantages even once they're gone. And to be able to create those advantages once your physical advantages are no longer present. And that just didn't really happen with him, unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I don't remember watching Moutier play a lot pre-draft, but if I remember times in Denver in some regard, uh, early on in his career, there were, I think, ample opportunities for him to, to kind of earn his way and in, in, in get minutes and, and be kind of a piece for them. And he couldn't find that right feel or that ability to, to kind of fit into a system with others. Does that sound what you remember of his time in Denver? A little bit. Uh, they also drafted Jamal Murray yeah. pretty quickly right after, and it became clear that Jamal was their point guard of the future. So that becomes you know, a factor as well. You get drafted over and you don't get as many developmental reps in the ways that you need them. 
it was tricky. It was tricky with Emmanuel. Um, but he, again, like he had like the weird revival season in New York where he averaged like 15 points and was like pretty effective. And you just wonder why it didn't totally work out for him um, as like a backup point guard, but maybe it just wasn't, wasn't meant to be. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the skill level just never quite continued along that developmental trajectory after the physical, you know, gifts weren't quite as there um, where he didn't have the physical advantages uh, of being bigger and stronger than guys. The next one is 2016. We'll get into 2016. Now. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Dragon Bender. I think this was just a pure misevaluation. Yeah. I, I don't think there is any other way to put this. I, I think people just completely missed this. Um, I get it. It looked like I say this is someone that like was doing draft work then. And I think I was stupid for <laughs> thinking that Dragon Bender was going to be an NBA player. Yeah. Like th- this is a guy like, and he did really well to like, I think kind of hide it throughout the course of like his pre-draft year. Like he played like seven Euro yeah. league games. Yeah. He sat out. If I remember correctly, the uh, youth tournament that he was supposed to play in uh, the year before his draft because of like a disagreement with the shoe company. Um, Like Croatia was supposed to play in like a certain brand of shoes, but he was signed to like a different shoe company. So he wasn't able to play like in the youth competition. Um, So Dragon Bender ended up like not getting to play there, ended up, like not getting to play uh, a ton with Maccabi. And he was kind of drafted as like, I don't want to say a man of mystery because he was so well publicized. Like he'd made an all tournament team when he was, I think like in the U 16s or U 17s, if I remember correctly. So NBA scouts had seen him and stuff, but like the last year, like he kind of was like, not, not, a t- not around a ton. Like he didn't play a ton of minutes that final year uh, with Maccabi Tel Aviv and the sun still took him highly. Uh, and I think it was just a misevaluation at the end of the day. Yeah. In, in some regard, I think that's true. It's, it's funny looking back anecdotally, like I, I had a, a college teammate teammate. I, I held his fucking water bottle for three years, um, but he, right. who ended up going and, and playing uh, professionally in Israel and, and worked out a lot with Bender. And, and as he and I were staying in touch, all he would tell me was, how good this kid looks in workouts and how good, how yeah. skilled he is in different areas. Like uh, he, that stuff, I don't know if it's the Darko Milicic effect coming back. Like when you work out with guys and you can see the skill and the things pop off the page, it is very different than being great in a five on five setting. It's yeah. just, it's very, very different. And a lot of times if we base an eval off of what guys look at in a one on O gym or in a workout or you know, smaller based settings like that, it just really raises red flags for me about, you know, you have a, a much higher chance of getting this wrong. Yeah. And like, even going back, like part of the thing that people, one thing that we didn't talk about in the intro is I think people often can put, and I do this too, like, I'm not going to sit here and absolve myself. Like I do this way too regularly. They can put, an emphasis on defensive traits above being able to fucking play uh, and just being able to like, you know, 
play basketball offensively at a high level, especially in today's NBA where like you have to be able to play on offense. Yes. Yes. Uh, just straight up. If you can't play on offense, you are just such a detriment to your team that it's really hard to have you out there. You need to be like an elite, elite defender, not just like a good defender. You need to be like Matisse Thibel out there, you know, just wreaking havoc for everybody. And even the Sixers realized that it was a little bit hard to play Matisse yep. at times. Yep. So with Bender, one of the ideas was like, he's this like very instinctive, smart defender. And I think people over-indexed that it, the idea of him being seven foot and like maybe being able to shoot at some point. Yeah. Another kind of thing that I think we do with a lot of these like bigger guys, right. Is we say, Oh, this guy's a great shooter for a seven footer. Right. Well, like a great shooter for a seven footer is, can you make like 32% of your threes or like 31% of your threes? It's still not good enough to like make that many threes in the NBA. Like you're still not going to get that opportunity in the NBA because you're not good enough at it, right? You have to be actually good at stuff to get a chance to make those reps happen in the NBA. You can't just be theoretically good at it. You have to showcase it in practicality that you can be good at it. And I think that Dragon Bender was uh, a theoretical prospect across the board. So, Sam, let me ask you this question because it's at that point is making me think a little bit about other parts. How, how many misses do you think come in the evaluation world based on trying to find the next version of a currently good or valuable oh, player? Right, a ton. Yeah, like, but like, what is what is the next version of Dragon Bender? Like, no, or what I, is Dragon Bender the next version of? Is kind of my question, right? Maybe, maybe Porzingis. Like maybe there's this idea that here's this big seven footer who could, I know he's so much better and he was so much well, better. He's so much bigger more than anything. He was. But like that, that was it. To me, that's what this comes from. Like how much of it is seeing a new type of player that comes through and saying, I want to find another version of that because it's going to be valuable in this league. If we can find that type of production and match it. And so oftentimes guys get miscast or, you know, drafted way above the position they should be based on that thought alone. Yeah. I mean, look like uh, that's a whole chapter in the undoing project, the Michael Lewis book that um, Daryl Morey uh, took part in. And one thing that Daryl Morey says is like, after Stephen Curry got drafted, you saw an influx of these, high level shooters, you know, that looked like Stephen Curry that were six foot three and like had very similar physical traits to Stephen Curry. Um, Like, frankly, like I think he even brings up that like had a very similar skin tone to Stephen Curry. Like you saw uh, statistically an uptick in those players getting drafted because of the Stephen Curry effect. So it's really interesting uh, across the board. Right. Um Really, really, really interesting, I think, in that way. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I, I think that the trying to find the next guy is the next X player is real. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's unfortunate for these guys because that, you know, Dragon Bender would have nothing to do with something like that of trying to be the next. Totally. Porzingis. He's just trying to be the best version of himself. And unfortunately, that is where you try to fit guys into boxes where they don't belong. I know you'd put it earlier, they're put in the wrong role or their skill set is just miscast for what an NBA team uses them for. A lot of times that comes to trying to replicate the version of somebody else that's good elsewhere. Yep. The good news for Dragon Bender is that because he was misevaluated, uh, he made $15 million. 
in the NBA. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Good for him. That always helps. That yeah. definitely always helps. Uh, the next one is Chris Dunn. Uh, this this is one where, like, Chris Dunn had a great close to the year this year. I don't even know that, like, I want to call Chris Dunn, like, a total disappointment. Maybe this is just me thinking that he's a slight disappointment because I adored Chris Dunn pre-draft. Yeah. I thought that dude was – I thought he was a dude. The problem was Chris Dunn, like, didn't really have a tight enough handle and, like, was so – much stronger and athletically gifted compared to college players that once he got to the NBA, he couldn't really quite maintain that advantage uh, offensively because he didn't have the skill level commensurate with being able to maintain his advantages once that advantage went away offensively. But I mean, you saw it on defense and you still see it on defense. Like he's still, he's still like kind of an, he's still an impactful player on defense. Like he played late in the season with the jazz. I don't know. Like I'm still, I'm still holding out hope that Chris Dunn can do something in the NBA. But, I mean, look, he'd be – it's fair to say he didn't live up to yeah. um, what people hoped of him, right? Well, he's drafted top five, and I think he's, it's fair to say he has not delivered top five value in that regard. Like some part of this, I think the, the handle is an interesting part of the evaluation. Like You just look at the shooting numbers that, that yeah. he's undergone in his career. That's a huge part of it. Uh, didn't really shoot his first couple of years at, at Providence, you know, played a little bit more sparingly. And then by his junior and senior years, you know, 35% his junior year, 37% from three, his senior year, both on really good volume. And then he gets to the NBA and yeah. you know, just looking at his first couple of years in, in the league, 28.8%, 32.1, 35.4, then back down to 25.9. Like at some point, the results are really what you get judged by. So I don't know if there was something in his shot that could have been evaluated differently or led people astray, but you draft on this upward trajectory of, as you'd mentioned earlier, continual growth over his four years in school, got better as a shooter in a way that really would have solidified his offensive game and made him well-rounded. And he gets to the league and that's kind of the missing link. Yeah. And look like, Chris Dunn, another injury guy. But, like, the thing is that we knew that, like, he was an injury guy coming into college. Like, he had that shoulder surgery in his second year of college, if I remember correctly, where, like, he missed the whole year almost. And uh, I think that, like, he missed a bunch of time with the Bulls one year. Like, he missed some time, like, almost, like, coming into his – I can't remember if his rookie or second season – I might have like broke a hand or broke a finger or something like that. Like there was like, he, he got interrupted with like little injuries. And I think like accumulation of little injuries can sometimes hurt your developmental trajectory. It's the amount of time that you can spend developing your craft and developing your skill set in his case. So uh, I think that, I think it was, I think it was, uh Oh, did we lose you here, Sam? But he had a number of different factors, and hopefully he's finding a home now in Utah. Like, he played 25 minutes a game and, like, was really – I thought he was, like, really quite good late in the year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really, really awesome. Like, defensively, like, he averaged uh, – I think I think he was up over, like, 10 points a game even as well. Like, he was – he was really, really good late for Utah. I'm hoping that, you know, we're at the point where he can 
kind of come through a little bit on the promise of what his defensive skill set is mixed with some offensive playmaking ability. I, I will also say this again, like I think that we oftentimes can overrate like defensive um, energy players yeah. with, you know, as opposed to at the expense of skill level and, and skill is where the NBA is going at this point. And we could say that's a combination of what you said, where evolution of the NBA matters mm-hmm. in a real substantial way here. And it's really hard to be unskilled in the NBA now, not to say Chris is totally unskilled, but uh, he's probably not as skilled as other NBA players are at the point guard position and relies more on athleticism, length, strength, you know, uh, everything that comes with that size as well. And it's, you know, it's hard there. All of these things are, you know, coming together at once to stop players sometimes. Yeah. Well, Sam, there's one player in the 2016 class that I just got to ask you about as an evaluator. Marquise Chris, what happened here? I had him like in the twenties, I think like I, I, that was just like a high draft pick to me. I thought that was like that. That's the, that's the Marquise Chris uh, Papianis draft. If I remember correctly, yeah. where, you know, that was just like a multiple, like weird, weird situation. And like Marquise was pretty okay. That first year for what he was. Um but yeah, no, I, I just, I, I never really got it totally. Like he was kind of a surprise one and done guy uh, after, you know, I think he, I think he, what was it? It was like 12 and five or something at Washington, but it was like highlights yeah. all the time. I thought he was like kind of a highlight guy um, more than anything. Cause like he played on, he played like on a Washington team with DeJounte Murray where DeJounte was like very clearly the best player. Yeah. And also was just like uh, that team was like terrible on defense despite the fact that they had DeJounte. Like it was, it was, I, I didn't really get the Marquise Chris thing, I guess. So like, I, that's not one that like I can, I guess that he would be a disappointment, but I, I don't know. I think that that was just, I think it's just a weird one. Yeah. That's a reach or, or a Miss eval in some way. Cause like part of me thinks, you know, super athletic six, nine ish guy who in theory shoots threes in college. Like those are the guys that you're throwing the dart at the dartboard at. If you're trying to look at where the NBA evolution is going. Right. So I, I, I don't know if that's an appropriate thing to do in the lottery. I, I, or, I certainly don't think so, but I wasn't really big into the eval space at that point. And Marquise Chris has always stood out as a super fascinating one to me. Like what did he show to earn that designation? Oh, he, he could jump out of the gym. Yeah. Like he, he was like a crazy, crazy athlete. But I, I think that like, this goes back to one thing that we haven't really brought up specifically with some prospects yet. Like he was always a project. Like even when he was drafted, like he was drafted as a project. And I know he started, you know, a bunch of games his freshman or his rookie year in the NBA, but like all, no matter what his first year, he was seen as a project. And I think that like, he's a great example of your, you have to keep up. And when you come in the NBA, it's such a deficit. Like, I don't even know if he made like all pack 12, his freshman year at Washington. Like it, 
did not like play on like a great team at Washington and like may not have been an all conference player. It was just such a bet on tools that when you're coming into the NBA at a level lower than everybody else, the hope is that you're going to increase your skill set like exponentially over the course of the next few years, because as you say, development is not linear. And like, he was just one where like it didn't come. And yeah. I, I think it was just ne- never really a great bet personally. Um, but I think that that's more what happened with Chris. Sure. So a- another thing when talking about those high ceiling or those project E type of draft picks, uh, I think that we at least have to acknowledge here how much usage of the G league has changed over the last decade. Totally. As a, as a developmental yep. tool, as how many, how many teams just even have one now, where we're at the point where a couple of years from now, every franchise in the NBA will have their own G league affiliate. That is changing a lot about how these guys can get those reps back, can continue to work on their game. And I think we've seen that's a tried and true method for developing guys into legitimate NBA players and, and rotational guys down the line. But as we're mm-hmm. talking 2015, 2016 here, that's still a little bit taboo. That's not something that a lot of these teams are utilizing as frequently for some of their top draft picks yeah. or or guys are even open to that type of route when they get drafted. So I think that has had a, a real a, a change in what we've seen over the last decade. I think that's a really good call too. I think that's a really good call. Let's go to 2017 now. Okay. The first one here is just Josh Jackson. Like why did Josh Jackson fail? Uh, developed earlier athletically than everybody else and like very clearly had off court yeah. uh, concerns, you know, that from, you know, if I remember correctly, there was a incident at Kansas where he kicked uh, a car of a woman uh, that was like dating somebody that, was like on the team or something like it was like a weird weird incident and like may have gotten suspended for that and then you know there was the rolling loud incident and then there was the incident at the uh what was it james jones had to like show up at a like autograph signing or something at a local grocery store because josh jackson like didn't and then and now, um, you know, over the weekend, there was a report that he's in the midst of a civil suit uh, for a sexual assault. So I think with Josh Jackson, we can kind of like chalk all of this up to just like there are some off court um, off court concerns. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, let's see here. Next is Frank Nilakina is the other one I wanted to talk about here. And this is like just a number. There are like, oh yeah, this is almost every box. There, there are so many boxes here. I, I will say this, and the, people are gonna think I'm like probably a little bit aggressive on this. I, I want to start here. In general, with European players, I really prefer at this point to see them be highly, highly, highly productive before drafting them. The guys that have tended to be successful are either A, super toolsy guys that like our centers, right? Uh, Clint Capella is like a good example of this. 
um, or Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert was like pretty good though in France his pre-draft year. Frank Milikina like played real minutes. Like he played 20 minutes a night for a French league team and averaged like five points and 1.5 assists and like was supposed to be a point guard. And I think was probably again, just kind of misevaluated. Um, I think if you're going to be a good player coming out of Europe, the odds are pretty likely that you're going to be a good, um, you're going to be a productive player in Europe if you're going to be a good player in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, a lot of coaching turnover during his early seasons in New York as well. We front office turnover as front, well. Front office turnover. We can check a lot of those boxes. Uh, I think the misevaluation one is part of it. You know, I, I think he was probably pretty raw from a, a skill and feel standpoint. You know, like you said, yep. hadn't hadn't produced in high volume at the top levels in Europe. Those guys tend to need a little bit longer of a time. Um, but as we talk about a lot of the guards here, I'm starting to notice a little bit of a, a trend in some regard, which is this idea of feel. And you and I talk about this a lot, but I think the guys who are prone to, I don't want to say the phrase falling out of favor, but falling out of favor sooner with an NBA team are those who don't provide that exceptional feel right out of the gate. It's like feel and skill as well. Yeah. Like it like buys uh, you time to keep developing the rest of your game in some regard. If you can show flashes of that, that are, are more sustainable. Yeah, like a lot of these guys are not great athletes that grew early that, you know, Nilakina 6'5", we're going to get to Killian Hayes, 6'5", Chris Dunn, 6'3", 6'4", Emmanuel Moutier, 6'3", 6'4", like these bigger guys that aren't great athletes that, you know, in many cases are really good defensively like Nilakina and Dunn. Um, I think we're probably recognizing here in a lot of ways that, you know, you can't overvalue potential defensive value and you can't overvalue the early developers of at size yeah. at the end of the day uh, at the point guard position. Uh, you really need an exceptional skill level more than anything else. Yep, totally, totally agree. Particularly, I, I can't emphasize this enough for first round picks. Like expectations are going to be high for you and you've got two to three and a half years to really prove that you deserve a second contract or belong in that organization long-term. Like mm-hmm. you don't, you don't have as much time as we like to think these guys do to play through some of those field concerns if they're having them. Yeah. I think that's one where like, look, I probably had Frank at like, I would guess like 10 or 11 that year. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard one. And then, like, look, like Dennis Smith is probably one that people will consider a uh, disappointment. Yeah. Dennis Smith got hurt. Like, yeah. that was a big factor with Dennis Smith. Like, he tore his ACL after, right? And now that he's not quite what he was athletically, he's adjusted, and he was literally one of the five best defensive point guards in the NBA. I guess that it is a disappointment in some respect, yeah. but, like, it's a disappointment based on, like, a very fundamental injury yeah. To change the trajectory of his career and, and team fit too, with how they drafted after him, bringing in a guy he, like Luka Doncic that changes what you need a Dennis Smith jr. For. And then afterward he gets traded to a new team as well. Like Dennis Smith had yeah. everything kind of thrown at him. 
yep. in the early portion of his career. You know, Lonzo obviously gets hurt. You know, the Markel Fultz stuff. Yep. You know, obviously he had like the thoracic outlet syndrome yep. and. He's become a good player. Lonzo has been a really good player when he's been out there. I get that some of these guys are probably disappointing to the teams that drafted them, but I don't really even want to talk about them the same way that we talk about Josh and Nilakina because like, I think Nilakina was just a miss. I, I don't, I don't know how that, I, I don't think that would happen in the current draft ecosystem. Like I, I do not think teams would be this high on a six foot five point guard that started most games for his team in France and averaged five points and, you know, 1.5 assists. I know he played like off ball and, you know, was next to a point guard, but like the odds are that if you're playing off ball in France, it's probably for a reason in some respect. Um, I get it that he won like the Euro MVP and everything like that, but um, it seemed pretty clear even like during his pre-draft year that like, the shooting was not quite what people thought the shooting was. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, you're yeah. not describing Killian Hayes there? Not describing Killian Hayes. Okay. We will My get fault. to Killian momentarily. My Let's fault. get to 2018. Ooh. Marvin Bagley. Marvin Bagley was just like an early developer athletically um, and never developed the skill level. He he was just one that like never, never got, he, he never, he didn't keep up in terms of the skill level improvement that he needed to. Yeah. In some regard, I also think that if I want to talk about trends in the NBA for a little bit, that was right around the time we started to see these non shooting four or five tweeners kind of lose their spot in some regard that teams are starting to favor stretch shooting and maybe guys who are a little bit smaller than Bagley at like six, seven, six, eight, the Jay Crowders of the world who can bulk up and play that same position at the four. It, there are a combination of factors. I think most of it is Bagley just not having the skill level he needed to to thrive in the modern NBA. But there is a little bit of positional uh, phasing out going on for what Bagley brought to the table. Yeah. No, I think that's a really, really good point. I think that's a really, really good point that like the requirements of the position uh, changed. Also, I think that like the processing and like feel for the game stuff low um changed from an evaluation perspective over the course of the last three years maybe is like a good way to put it right um i think we do a better job of evaluating that now than what we used to yeah i this was the first real draft class i got into pretty heavily uh bagley wasn't a top 10 guy for me in some regard i never loved the process of how he played at duke and i was a huge duke fan i tried to watch as many of those games yeah. as i could but i mean it his raw talent was off the charts as a, a one and yeah. done prospect yeah i had him i think third behind ayton and luca um and just thought that it would work on some level uh, but it just didn't. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I thought the natural talent would just take over and like it, you know, I thought he'd improve, but he just never improved. Um, yeah. yeah. It just didn't happen. But again, another reclassification guy as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had my big miss in 2018 with Mo Bamba. That was a guy I was super high on. Yeah. Not one that uh, looked like probably had Mo at like, you know, seven or eight, you know, some eight or nine, something like that. But uh, what made you so excited about Mo? 
this was copycat syndrome for me in looking at how Rudy Gobert was dominating the NBA and drop coverage big, great shot blocker, yeah. size and length and, and good instincts. I thought Bamba had a lot more offensive upside to that. And maybe this was me getting into AAU basketball and, and having uh, a little bit less of a, a well-rounded picture of how skilled all of these guys really are. But I remember watching him handle the ball and shoot threes and, and be able to do different things. Uh, you know, anecdotally, I watched him. I think it was the Texas Kansas game right around the holidays between Christmas and New Year's when he absolutely dominated the Jayhawks. And like I, mm. I kind of fell in love with him. And and as I've gotten better at this and spent more time being thorough and using everything as a data point, not just falling in love with those that I first get attached to, uh, I've I've. I think become more disciplined in letting myself be taken astray by somebody who just flashes that much potential and saying, that's it. I'm sold. But that's kind of what it was for me with Bamba. Like I so badly wanted him to be Rudy Gobert that shoots threes that I let that overtake the rest of the evaluation. Yeah, no, I think that's a totally fair way to put it. And I think that like just getting, you know, having guys that like fall into boxes is easy. Right. Um, trying to think anybody else here, anybody else? I mean, Kevin Knox, like, I think people just misevaluated Kevin Knox's athleticism. Sure. Uh, you know, 18 years old, people bought like super young, super, you know, potential to shoot came off of a bunch of movement at Kentucky playing within that scheme and showcased the ability to move and shoot at six foot eight, six foot nine, whatever he was at the time and loved that. Um, just didn't like I, I never bought the hip flexibility I think I had him at like 13 or 14 that year because I was just like oh, I don't I don't know what this is totally yeah he's a bowling ball I just remember him running people over and like at some yeah. point well so everything's that, in a straight line like yes. he has no shiftiness that's right at, at some point you need a little bit more skill and and like navigation and traffic to be able to make it as a, a slashing wing who's doesn't have like the most reliable jump shot. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that was one that I didn't totally get at the time. Let's go to 2019. Jarrett Culver is a fun Ooh. one. Ooh. I think uh, I liked Culver. I did not love Culver as much as everybody else did. Like I remember pre-draft, like he was the one that th- this was when like, the draft Twitter community seemingly became like a bit overwhelming uh, in a big way. And the draft Twitter community fucking loved Jarrett Culver. And I liked him. I think I had him six that year. If I remember correctly, like there were a lot of people that had him two that year, uh, two or three, like behind Jod or like even ahead of Jod, depending on the situation. Um, I I didn't get that at all. Um, I, I didn't get that at all. Uh, I had him like in a totally different tier, but it is interesting. Like, I think that what happened with Jarrett was like, he kind of in his sophomore year, he really learned how to shoot. It felt like, and then in between his sophomore year and June and like rookie year in the NBA, I think that there were some changes to the shot that like, didn't totally work. Um, Just mechanically looking at it. So yeah, it's interesting. He He's one that I think was tough. I think a lot of this is um, over-indexing winning in some regard. 
that maybe. year, that year in 2019, I feel like the Malachi effect, baby, the Matt Penny Malachi effect, maybe not quite to, to that regard where it's like just one small run. Like that was a year. Everybody was seemingly falling in love with Texas tech and Chris Beard and, and that kind of team and style of play. And you're looking for someone to become the hero of that. And I think Culver kind of became that guy in some regard. I still had him a, a top 10, uh, you know, pick or, or eval on my own board that year. I had him eighth overall, but man, um, there's just so much of this comes down to whether you can shoot and whether you, whether you don't shoot at the NBA level yeah. like that. He showed feel. I think he still has feel. He showed length and defensive ability. I think he probably still has those, but man, if you're going to scale down to that off ball role, like the shot has to go in, it just has to. And yeah. maybe maybe where the eval missed on a guy like Culver was over overdoing it on what he was able to create off the bounce. I don't think he. I, I think I think people just bet on shooting first and foremost. Yeah, like it's it's not always that guys are just going to learn to shoot in the yeah. NBA. In uh, second, you're right. Like I think that people over indexed on the shot creation he showed at Texas Tech. Yes, where like the offense was like super movement heavy and involved like a lot of different players and a lot of different, um, uh, a lot of different, you know, like I was there at that final four. Like I saw it, like it yep, was, me too. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get it, I guess at the time. Hey, we were at the same game. I didn't realize that. That's pretty neat. We were, that's right. We were. How about that? Uh, you know, you know, who knows, like maybe TMNT is right. Like, you know, maybe he does a little better under a different organization, you know, that organization's goals pretty rapidly changed throughout the course of its, his tenure there. So it's always possible. Yeah. And like, this feels very Chris Dunn like to me, um, a little bit over indexed on the defense wasn't as good of a shot creator with the ball in his hands as we may have thought. And the shot just didn't fall where we got, I don't want to say fooled by the upper trajectory of multiple years in college, but it just, he wasn't that legitimate of a shooter to be, to have that become his hang your hat on its skill to see minutes in the NBA. Yep. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's a good call. Okay. Uh, You wanted to talk a little bit about Cam Reddish. I mean, is this one where it's just like over indexing the idea of the talent when in reality, like, hasn't ever he he was there was a year in Atlanta where I thought he was actually like pretty good because he really defended at a high level, yeah, um, and shot it reasonably well that year. But he, the sum is not the uh, the result is not the sum of the tools with Cam. No, Rush, maybe is a way it, to put it. Well, the reason I wanted to bring him up is really to ask you because I don't know what to make of this whole thing. Like I, I still see a lot of those tools in the upside and, and the unique skill stuff. Like I don't know if he is a, an eval miss in some regard and the fact that he just hasn't really put it all together. And, and in some regard, do we learn from a guy like a Chris Dunn who maybe, you know, evolves just over time. Thing? And maybe it is just a field. I thought he had, pretty good feel when he was younger and at West town and, and showed a couple of flashes at Duke and, and playing like the third or fourth fiddle within their offense, because that, that was a year when they had Zion, they had RJ Barrett, they had Jones essentially running the point. Yeah. Like where, where does he come into play there? 
And so, yeah, he hard. did play off the ball. So, like, the adjustment, we can't say it's that. Right. But I thought I thought there was a bet on field that he showed like at West Town and in the Let, let's hold on him. Let, let's hold him for a minute because there was a yeah. question that got dropped in the comments that we're going to finish not finish with, but answer here momentarily. Sure. And that's that's an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, let's go to 2020. Okay. Uh, Killian Hayes. So I had mm-hmm. Killian Hayes like at 11 or something that year. He wasn't like a top 10 player for me. Uh, I think I might even had him like 14 or something like okay. I, I didn't. I did not totally yeah, buy nine. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's fine. Like he's, I, I think people way over index the ability to separate and that's mm-hmm. just not, not who he is. He can't separate. Yep. Big guard does not equal better. You have to still be yeah. able to generate paint touches and rim pressure. And to me, that's without a ball screen. That's the thing. Like you can't always do it only when you have a ball screen. You have to be able to do it without a ball screen. Sometimes he needs a ball screen every single time. I think that is also a running theme of some of the things we're seeing. Emmanuel Moutier needed a ball screen every time, um, you know, going back through Chris Dunn could actually separate off of isolation, which might be why he's stuck around a little bit in yeah. the NBA. Um, you know, continued to be like a higher level athlete than a lot of these guys. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's like a a potential factor. Well, and then you know, with Killian, so much of this we we've had overlaps with this before. Of he's probably not good enough to do everything with the ball in his hands, but he's certainly not a proven enough spot up shooter. So that's that leaves you in this position where you you don't really check either box as a guard that you would need to be on the floor. Pistons go out and draft Cade Cunningham. How do you fit next to a guy like that within the offense in some regard? Like that's the Dennis Smith Jr. thing of your role is drastically changed or different than the one that you thought you might have. It's a challenge. The other thing about Killian is like, I feel like people melted down about him making a couple of late game threes uh, in his pre-draft year Mm -hmm. and being like, quote unquote, like clutch. When in reality, he shot 29% from three in his yeah. pre-draft year. And like has never been, he was 31% uh, in the year before his pre-draft year. He's 25 at the U-17 World Cup. He was 25.8 at the 2017 U-16 Euro Championships. Killian Hayes has never been able to shoot. And I think people over-indexed on the idea of him. Oh, well, it looks okay. And he made these late game shots and it was just like a way over index on what the skill set was. He can really pass. And like, I, I think that he does know how to really play with a ball screen, but um, I think yep. people way over index on the wrong things. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that's fair in retrospect in a lot of regards. I, I also think that at that time it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in big for his position, pretty good feel, maybe developing as a shooter is the glass half full way to look at some of that. Like there are defensive tools and, and he almost looks like one of those, if the shot falls, what are you really missing type of pre-draft prospects? So like, I I still get it in theory in some regard, but yeah, like, but he's, but he's never shot. Like that's the thing that we do all the time. Like, Oh, like he'll shoot at some point. Well, no, no, like, a, especially for point guards, point guards have to be able to shoot on the move at high speeds off of the pull up. Like you have to be able to do so, so, so many different things. Like you, it's not just 
we need to get this guy where he's developing a catch and shoot opportunity, right. which is a lot easier than developing a point guard being a threat off the bounce in pull up situations. So yeah, that's that that was yeah. never one that I totally got into. Okay. Um, the next one here that I want to mention, I just want to briefly mention Obi Toppin. Uh, I, I want to see like the situation with Toppin. I want to see him with the Pacers yeah. and all that stuff. I, I am fascinated. I will say, like, I wonder if you know, we over-indexed on him being like the best athlete in college basketball last year, and then as he caught up, you know, it was it was a little harder for him. Yeah, he's he's a great athlete who I never. Like I never thought he could sit down in a stance. Like there's something about his hips and his lower body that that never really sat as super athletic to me. Maybe a, a different circumstance in Indiana here is the best one for him. Like I look at the way he was deployed this past year with the Knicks, and like I don't think Obi Toppin, whose selling point was his athleticism and kind of versatility in the pick and roll or pick and pop game. Like don't camp him in the corner and have him be a catch and shoot guy. I'm glad he's found decent value in doing that but he's gotta he's gotta be used differently in some regard uh the last guy here that i want to talk about quickly is isaac Coro. well we need yeah. to talk about uh another guy too but um isaac Coro um is another one like just never shot it has never shot it um he's been really good on defense and he's been um able to stick as a role player and i think he probably will stick as a role player which is why like i don't totally want to spend time on him but yeah like needs to shoot at the end of the day. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. 16th on my board. I never really got it with a guy like a Cora. Yeah, I, I, I just, yeah. I never got it. Um, for a three and D guy who doesn't really shoot the ball. Well, I struggled to see where his offensive role was going to come in. Like people wanted to talk about passing and playmaking and yeah. some of these flashes that he showed, but like, what is he going to do to have the ball in his hands at the next level? Like I, I just yeah. never saw, I never saw the vision for what his role would ask of him. Yeah, I fucked that up. That was on me. Yeah, I had him at like fifth or sixth or so. I had him in like I had him in Halliburton, like right next to each other. Um, yeah, I, I can't, fifth or sixth is where I tough, had him. Tough day at the office. Yeah. Um, the last guy's Wiseman, and the, we talked a lot about like, you know, his issues. Um, didn't get a lot of reps. You know, didn't get the reps at Memphis. Sat the year with Golden State, had some injury stuff that came up. Um, feel for the game stuff, I think, was just like a misvaluation. Um, you, you know, uh, to me, it's just like the total like lack of experience to develop before being thrown into high leverage situation. Situation. Wiseman's just always going to be so tough. Like a injuries and the lack of availability at a time when your development absolutely calls for it is pretty brutal that we we see that be what knocks a lot of these guys off there even if they can regain their athleticism it still knocks them off their their trajectory pretty cleanly yeah uh he just i think probably never really i watched him get absolutely obliterated by oscar chibwe um playing in southern california i think in his season before his senior year at memphis east and i was just like oh man this guy is like not it and then i kind of came around like he's one that i wouldn't fuck up on again i think pretty clearly um 
one thing that I want to talk about quickly here, we've talked about a lot of point guards. And it seems like where the misses occur most are these bigger bodied, like defensively valuable in theory, guys who struggle athletically and like maybe struggle with shooting. Why do we think this became such an archetype across the NBA? Because like you look at the best point guards in the league, right? It's. Yeah, I'm like trying to think through like John Morant, Chris Paul, Darius Garland, Damian Lillard, like uh, Van Vliet. Um, you know, I'm I have like the assist, like best, most assists yeah. up right now. Steph. Jamal Murray, Mike Conley, uh, De'Aaron Fox, Stephen Curry, um, you know, can, you know, Drew Holiday is another one. Certainly. Uh, you know, Trey Young, God, I almost forgot Trey Young. Um, why Jalen Brunson, another one, certainly. Like, if we're forgetting your point guard, I'm not doing it purposely. I'm just like listing a lot of really good point guards to make a point here. Very few of these guys are like this archetype of player. And that scares me for Anthony Black. No, because he ticks a lot of these boxes, man. Uh, his feel is off the charts in comparison. Way better than most of these guys. Any of these guys that we've talked about. And and that to me is the floor raiser is your feel and your adaptability, like elite character, elite feel for the game. He's bigger than a lot of like we're talking about six, four ish guards, six, three, like what Culver yeah. maybe six, five, like black is six, seven and long and can defend up and down. There's so much more versatility to a guy like him. I, I'm going to push back on that because he's my baby. Yeah. And like Josh Giddy is like a prime example of the hope for this kind of archetype. Yes. Right. Um, he's like more that, but he's not Josh's size. Like Josh is like six, nine, like mm-hmm. he's six, seven, like there's difference. Um, you know, it, I'm trying to think of like examples where this fits. Like DeJounte, I guess, is an example. Um I mean Drew, I guess, would kind of be an example here, right? In some regard. He's maximized his offensive ability over the last decade. Like I I think he's improved from where he was early in his career to such an extent that he's closer to joining that first group. I remember like the Killian Hayes like idea was like, can he be like a James Harden was a thing that got brought up. I mean, look, it, oh. it was stupid. Don't, <laughs> I did not say this. I'm just saying that like, that was the idea, right? You mean and... one of the best shooters we've ever seen? Correct. <sighs> uh, so that's, I guess you could say that like tank six foot four, six foot five body type, right? Um, Derek White's a good example, like bigger bodied point guard that can do some stuff. But it doesn't feel like a lot of the best point guards in the league tick this archetype. So is there a chance that we're just overvaluing it like across the board? Probably so. Um I think if we overvalue it, it's almost more in terms of draft position 
yeah. than it is anything else. Like I still think that Derek White's and Marcus Smart's are incredibly valuable to have on your roster in today's NBA, but I don't think that you should draft them trying to make that person a top three offensive option or yeah. giving them the keys to an offense. Like that's where the the onus has to come in on whoever the evaluator, the front office executive and the coaching staff are to be aligned on what they're going to ask of this person. Okay. So I want to go back to a question that Jordan Handelman asked earlier. Ooh. Shout out to Jordan. Who's thrown some really awesome questions Been on uh, fire. into the YouTube comments here. Uh, what players that you misevaluated do you think you would miss on again if you scouted them today? And I mm. think this is a fucking awesome question. And this is why I wanted to hang, why I wanted to save Cam Reddish. Mm. I probably, I would think miss. I would just miss. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I think I would just miss big wing. Maybe like I would be a little bit lower because of the shooting. Like the shooting was not awesome at Duke, but man, he was high volume at Duke too. Like, I think Reddish is a good example. Like, what players that I misevaluated would I miss on if I did this again? I think I would probably miss on him. Yeah. It's a good one. That's a good one. I, I, I probably wouldn't have Mo Bamba in the high esteem that I had him in, but I would still be drooling over the upside in some regard. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't have like Bagley particularly high. Um, I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't have Knox super high. Yeah. I mean, like maybe Hazonia, like again, like bigger wing, but like, again, like was okay yeah. for Barcelona pre-draft. So I wouldn't miss on him because so, like, I, I know we're, I know we're not going this recent here we want the cutoff of 2020 because we've seen these guys play for a long enough where we get a better feel like i, th- I think we still got to be optimistic about what these 2021 22 draft picks can turn into would you change anything on jalen suggs yes 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 yeah. yes 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 i would uh feel out of ball screens and um shooting yes yeah. I-, I had jalen too high I, I I've thought about Jalen quite a bit. I yeah. still really like Jalen and still would take him like over Jonathan Kaminga, for yep. instance, like I'm more than happy with that. So I'd still have him like top six, but yes, there are things I would change. So I, I see Jalen Suggs trajectory now as being closer to a Marcus smart or a Derek white. Like that's who totally he agree. should be and needs to be. And in that vein, I don't know if you want to draft a guy like that in the top five, six, seven, eight, in a normal yep. draft class year in some regard. Um, yeah, that's going to be a tough one for me because I, I love Jalen Suggs. I'm trying to think of like other players that if I, I'm trying to think of like more answers to this question, like guys that I would miss on again. I'll say Usman Garuba in 2021 because yeah. I, I just buy the feel in the defense and I, I still think he just hasn't found the right team to utilize him. I had him in the lottery, so I would probably have I given how much more important I think offense is in the NBA, I probably would have him more like top twenty, but I would still have him probably top twenty, which is frankly given what he's shown this year, probably still a miss. Um or given like what he's shown at this point of his career. Uh 
Jabari Parker is one that I would probably miss on again. Jabari obviously had the knee injury that like completely cratered him in a real way in 2017. Like people don't remember that in 2017, he was averaging like 26 and three and shooting 49, 37, 75 and was like well on pace to being really good. But that that's like the kind of player that bigger wing shot creator, real shooting touch, but probably was not as athletic as I'd hoped. Like that's one that I would probably miss on again, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And like, look, we could play that game with like a, a Markel Fultz or, or someone like that too. Like that's just, I would, well, yeah, again, like I would miss on Markel again. Like yeah. I would have that guy ranked number one, uh, yeah. given what we saw at Washington, I'd have him ranked number one. Yeah. And I, and I loved, I, I had Jason Tatum higher than like anybody that year. Like truly, um, Jordan Handelman brings up Dalen Terry. Uh, that's again yes. another one that I think I would probably miss on. Um, again, big wings. Like I, I will miss on big wings. Hmm. <sighs> Pour one out for my guy, Jalen Suggs. I love Jalen Suggs. Um, I will give you the floor on this one. Uh, Gregory Castillo says, no. I'm still swinging on Baba Miller. Adam Spinella, are you still swinging on Baba Miller? Uh, I, good guy. I have three swings and misses until I strike out. I'm 0-1 right now. So uh, I'm step. I'm stepping up to the plate looking like that thing is fat, and I'm going to hit it out of the park, no doubt about it. I love it. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to see if there are any other – questions that we got here i thought that one on like guys that you would misevaluate still um was really good uh really 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 good yeah it's this has been a really fun conversation because we have arrived at newer archetypes of players for me to look out for that i should be a little more cautious about falling in love with because either their archetype doesn't always fit in the nba or uh there is just not a strong enough track record of success of guys showing what they show at a younger age. Ooh. Yeah. J- Jordan Handelman brings good. up, would Jan Vesely have been good if Jan would have came over later? People often ask this, like would Vesely have figured it out if he'd have come over five years later? Because uh, if he would have been five years younger, let's say not come over five years later, because Jan went on a, to become one of the best players in Europe, like unequivocally, yep. but B also like theoretically had something of a skill set that could translate to the NBA. The thing that Jan never did that I think he really would have needed was shoot from three. Um, he he didn't go toward shooting from three. He actually just like completely got rid of it from his game in Europe. Like he doesn't take them really. So I, I think that it would have been a little bit more difficult without him being able to shoot. Uh, for him to make it work because in Europe, I think he is like for his size, a great enough athlete to like be a great player. Uh, But yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I think that he's one that people like bring build up in their mind a little bit. And I still don't know if it would have worked. I think that like he had the career he was supposed to have probably and made a bunch of money in the NBA for being the sixth overall pick and then made a bunch of money in Europe being one of the, you know, probably at his peak, one of the five best players in Europe. Yeah. I think that he would have maybe gotten additional chances to stick around longer 
had he waited five years just because he fits better in theory in different spots across the league. But um, yeah, I, I think the lack of shooting kind of caught up to him in some regard. Uh, and then here's another good one from Jordan Handelman. Should we value Shaden Sharp more because he seems to be overcoming that missed year? We talked about throughout the podcast, the idea of skipping steps, reclassifying everything like that. Um I think yes, yes, a little bit. Yes, the I feel is too. still not there, which is the problem of all of this. Like, but it's a little bit there. It's more than I expected to be there. There, I think is a good way to put it. I really am drinking the shade and sharp Kool Aid right now. Like, I'm I'm super high on this kid. Yeah. Um, this is a really good question as well. Uh from basketball Genesis people were very high on Kendall Brown in the first two weeks of college basketball, like say five top five to seven on boards. Do you think overreacting on someone like that is easy? The other one in that draft was Trevor Keels. Um, people way overreacted to Trevor Keels. I thought uh, pre-draft or like early in the season. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. You just can't get tied to your evaluation at the end of the day. And I think too many people do like, like people had Trevor Keels is like a first round pick even at the end of the season. And I think I ended up with him at like 40 on my board. I think I ended up with Kendall Brown at like 38, 37, somewhere like late thirties. I had him um, mid to late thirties. You just can't get tied to it at the end of the day. It's the key. Like just be very flexible. Like have like another thing that I always talk about that is a Daryl Moreyism that he took from I think Phil Tetlock and Super Forecasting, which is a great book that I've read as well. Um, strong opinions weekly held, uh, where you have very strong beliefs, you go to bat for your beliefs, you can explain them, you really are able to continue down the road of uh having a case for it and being able to explain why this belief is your belief but when the information changes then you change you change on a whim right and part of the problem with that in some respect having a very public facing job like i do and like adam does is that players see this and families of players see this and uh if i list a guy at like five on my board that guy's probably going to go pro after that year, frankly, like unless I am completely out to lunch and I'm the only one doing it. Like that guy's probably going to see that information. and He's probably going to be like, Oh yeah, I should go. Like I should go pro. And that piece of it is where you have to be very in my position, especially very uh, conservative uh, little C conservative uh, in your in what you write and in what you're putting out into the public sphere and I, I'm always just very cognizant of that I think yeah I mean I think what basketball genesis is hinting at here is this idea of anchoring bias that so the first time yes. you see somebody you develop a really strong opinion of them and yes. you over index towards that opinion. It is something that all evaluators have to be cognizant of and worry about. That's why I always try to remind myself as I'm watching film or going through guys, everything is a data point. 
it's not the data point. It's not the most important aspect about him. Everything combines and comes to form your evaluation on somebody. Yep. I think that is correct. Uh, Adam, this was great. I had a great time doing this. Shout out Alex Eddie, a long time listener of the show. The man Um, with two first names. Did you rank Bam at 27? I don't remember. I definitely didn't. I had him at I don't like, think I did rankings back then. And if I did I think I had him at like nineteen or so. No, um, Adam, Adam, I had him at twenty, but I wasn't doing full time evals then. Yeah, yeah, I think I had him at like nineteen or twenty. Um Yeah, and that was before I'd gotten like some real feedback on like how much he fucking obliterated workouts that year, and he did. Uh, he absolutely destroyed them in like such a substantial way. Let me go back and look to see where I had him while we're talking. Uh, yeah, I had him, I had him at 20. See. And even before I like, I don't even know if I was, I wasn't even at the athletic then. I don't even know if I was doing this. Like I was doing it full time. Yeah. I had him at 20. It looks like. So hey. yeah, no. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know who you're referring to there. Um hmm. You feel like, look, pre-draft, like there were people, there were teams at like, you know, 18 that were doing homework on BAM thinking there was a chance he was going to get there. So, yeah, I don't know what that's about. Um, uh, Seasons and Sloan wants a quick word on the USA team being beaten by Cade and Jalen Duran. I'm going to make James Edwards come on the pod uh, at some point, either this week or next week and talk about the Detroit Pistons and Cade. Um, yeah. But uh, quick word, I wouldn't read too much into the select team beating the no. USA team as Steve Kerr. It's a rite of passage every year. Uh, having said that, like the fact that Cade is a real dude should have Pistons fans very excited. Uh, and Jalen Duran, like Jalen got spoon fed by Cade. Like it was totally, totally a stud. I love Cade Cunningham so much. This is just warming my heart right now. I love it. Yeah, Cade is going to be a monster. I'm yes. all in on him. Like, I've seen yes. no reason to not be. But I'll have James on maybe later in the week to talk about the Pistons. Because someone else someone else actually asked me um, – someone else actually asked me um, about doing the Pistons in a YouTube comment. So, yeah. I, I want to make sure and do the Pistons at some point soon. Nice. Okay, Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Yeah, find me on Elon Musk's new pet project at the box and one underscore uh, my YouTube channel, Adam Spinella, my name, or uh, Substack, the box and one dot Substack dot com. I'm doing a deep dive into some mid major prospects who I sneakily kind of like coming into the year, or at least I'm very intrigued by. Some of them will be. Uh, hopefully gracing NBA draft boards this coming season. Others might need multiple years, but at the very least, just trying to shine a light on a couple players who don't always get that at the college level and see, hey, is this is this anything here? It's as Sam and I talked about at the very beginning, me abusing my synergy privileges and just watching way too much film that probably doesn't mean anything. I love it. Adam, go follow his work. He's the best. Uh, I have a top 60 board coming tomorrow it is actually coming tomorrow it is filed everything is ready to go we're gonna be there you're gonna get to see my rankings i'm super excited for you to see them 
Uh, they're a mess. Truly this 2024 NBA draft class is a total mess. I have like a group of five guys. I think that I think you could reasonably rank number one right now. Um, yeah, like that, that's where I'll leave it. I guess I would say. Ooh, I can't wait. Awesome. Uh, keep it locked there. Keep it locked on the show. I will have a couple more podcasts this week until next time. We will talk soon. Bye. Thank you.